Wumanjika. My name is Larry Walsh, and I'm an elder of the Tunnarong people and the Kulin Nations. And we acknowledge we are on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri, Wurrung people, and the Bumwurrung people. And we pay our respects to their ancestors, and we also pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And through them, we also pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Islander communities that live in the Western suburbs. Welcome to FCAC Radio, a podcast series produced by Footscray Community Arts Centre, platforming artists, creatives and stories in Melbourne's West and beyond. Hi there, my name's Irvi and welcome to FCAC Radio. Today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by the formidable Leah Jean McIntosh. Leah is a writer and photographer and the founding editor of Liminal Magazine. She's a powerful leader and advocate for marginalised artists in Australia, and she's a dear old friend of mine. I really hope you enjoy this interview. Hi, Leah. How are you going? Hey, Amy. I'm okay. <laughs> how are you good. doing? Yeah, I'm all right. Um, for our listeners, we're in stage four coronavirus lockdowns in Melbourne, so both Leah and I are obviously recording from home. How have you been feeling through this all? I feel like I've been like okay. I feel like as a writer, I'm like uniquely situated to like deal with being at home and reading and writing all the time, which has been nice. But like, I think it was when we launched the Glitch publication with the Emerging Writers Festival, we did a cute little digital online thing and that was really fun to put together. And then I put it together and we like played it and I, it got to this moment where I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not at the event. <laughs> like, where are, where are all my friends? <laughs> um, and yeah, that was like the moment where I was like, I just would like to see everyone. Yeah, especially for launches and stuff like that. It must, I mean, I watched it online and it looked, it felt like you guys were all in the same space because you were on the screen, but um, <laughs> feels different recording it. Yeah, yeah, no, I just really miss those those events. Um. For our listeners, Leon, I actually met and became friends in 2014 during our honours year at Monash University, and we were probably very different people then, but what's <laughs> remained, I hope, is a passion, passion for literature and discovering untold stories. So do you think that's true and what's changed for you since then? Oh, no. Herbie <laughs> is outing me. Um, I did my <laughs> honours. Yeah, I did my honours project on David Foster Wallace, <laughs> cool. the whitest man alive. Oh, um, he's not alive anymore. Well, yeah, true. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> the whitest man dead and alive. <laughs> oh, he's alive in my heart. Um I still, I still like his writing, but I was I was a really different person in 2014. Thinking back now, a professor had kind of approached me at the time to do it on his year on Maxine Honkingston because I'd written this piece about language and power and the diaspora. And I turned her down because I was like, oh, I, you know, I think people will take me more seriously if I look at postmodernists or post-postmodernists, which like in turn is a bit of a joke, <laughs> a bit of a joke now. 
Yeah, I think it was, I think what you're bringing up is really true because even now working in the arts and how much the landscape has changed, I feel like that was a big divide between what we learned at uni and the real world because I feel like even (laughs) doing like an English major and philosophy, it's like philosophy is even worse. It was just like the canon and you start at like Milton or something and just go down to just small white men. So it was actually really rare to find anything that different in the in the syllabus. Yeah, and I feel like you and I were probably like maybe the only people of colour in that course, like that literary studies. And we're like, we didn't even have the language for that at that point though. I think we, no. were, just pa- we were just pals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think um, we just, yeah, we met then and I think my favourite memories were going to your house in St Kilda and um, pretending to do it. Well, we did do some work, but it was mostly like wine and despair. <laughs> With so much despair. <laughs> Honours. Yeah. Oh. And we thought that was like the most important thing we'd ever do. Oh, it really was. <laughs> I'm glad it I'm glad it wasn't the most important thing I've ever done. <laughs> well, I think watching you grow since then and you've just like blossomed into one of the most influential voices in Australia's literary scene. And it's been super inspiring watching the journey. <laughs> well that that is very sweet if untrue um no absolutely well you're referring to me and like a million other people so in your studies in terms of your studies you went on to then complete masters in English in London and now you're writing your PhD in cultural studies at Melbourne Uni but before we discuss your professional work I just wanted to find out a little bit more about your experience studying in London and whether you think studies in the arts has prepared you for what you're doing now or what could have prepared you better I guess So I did a master's at the University College London. I think it's called Issues in Modern Culture. And you study like from the 1890s to like the 2010s. And you look at like modernism, et cetera. And there's like 20 weeks, I think, where you study an author each week. And it's like quite an intense period where you kind of study Ulysses one week and then Infinite Jest the next week. And then it goes on. And it's like... It was incredible because, like, I just had this really strong education in a period of time that I'm still incredibly interested in, this, like, contemporary literature. But looking, like, even at the time, something felt a little off. And, of course, I was in the colonial centre, like, <laughs> I was in London. Uh, why would they Why would they study people of colour? And there were, so there were 20 authors on this course and only I think it was one writer of colour and that was Toni Morrison <laughs> um, and we studied Beloved and of course that was an incredible week and I think that very much changed me but like you know <laughs> like one out of 20. So I started becoming like more and more incensed at this notion that we were just completely elided and I started doing my own research for my thesis which ended up being on the Asian American body in space in like the poetry of Lee Young Lee and Jenny Zhang and Timothy Yu. And that was like a really weird thing to come out of trying to do a master's in London. (laughs) But like that was really interesting because so often we just see what's in front of us, but I just started seeing all the stuff that wasn't in front of me Um, and like had some support from the academy, but not like terribly much like the concept of diversity at University College London is to have two female teachers on a course of 14 
tutors <laughs> and they're like still white. But like I think learning what I was interested in was really important and like knowing that if I put enough time and effort in, I would still receive attention from the tutors and I got a really great grade from that and that was really an interesting experience. It was kind of a very much a turning point for me because I started researching Asian American publications and like Asian American representation. So then I like, you know, I came home from London and I was totally broke because I'd been a student in London at the time when the exchange rate was appalling. And I just felt like this real lack of agency because I was home. I, I like was looking for a job I think and like I was like either overqualified for the jobs I was applying for underqualified and I like was very much not in the Melbourne lit scene at all and I'm really like I'm quite a shy person so like I didn't feel like I could (laughs) crack into it either like I felt very much like ah (laughs) like I'm not I'm not part of this world and like I didn't even like I knew peril existed but I just felt too shy to even approach peril or the lifted brow at the time or overland so I just was like all right I'm just gonna do what I've always done and just um do my own little thing and then that little thing became liminal so um it's just born out of real shyness (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. That's a, such a cool story. And I think there's so many points that's relatable for writers these days, even in your story, but you've created a space that can be welcoming and liminal didn't exist, obviously, when we were in uni or when I was younger trying to write poetry. So I think, yeah, you've opened up a space that allows for new voices and that's really exciting. So talking about liminal, you're the founding editor of the magazine. And for those that don't know, it's an online publication and you've done more than 130 online long form interviews, free yeah. print publications and a serialized comics anthology for people of color, which is amazing. Well done. <laughs> Thank um, you. And you've told us about what inspired this project. So was it, how did you go about sort of setting this platform up when you got back home and were feeling a bit alienated from the crowd in Melbourne in terms of literature? So essentially like I think you and I are part of the tum- the Tumblr generation or like, you know, the blogs, et cetera. So I used to think of and still do kind of think of Liminal as like a glorified blog. <laughs> oh, well, so I, I came home and I felt really alone. So I set up these conversations with a few people I'd known or still knew who actually ended up all being like half Asian like me, which is a term I like, you know, is also deeply problematic, but Lee Lai and James J. Robinson and Rachel Tai. And we just sat down and I'd never interviewed anyone before. And I was like, Hey, can we just talk about your practice and also talk about kind of what it's like to be a young artist right now? And we had these conversations and I recorded them. And in doing this, like kind of was like these conversations actually like are quite interesting to me and I wonder if they'd be interesting to other people. So publish the conversations alongside portraits because I'm like, I am a film photographer and that's also how I connect with people. So when we would do the interview immediately after, we'd take some photos together and that kind of, that was liminal at the start was just like just these little conversations with some portraits and just kind of creating 
a community with a community I kind of nascently had, essentially thinking it would be a closed project of about 20 interviews. And I think this kind of small thinking, in a sense, like, it's very sad to me now that I, <laughs> like, felt so small that I could only create something that was tiny. But in a, in a way, like, it served me. The smallness allowed me to, like, just create community, talk to emerging writers, and, like, instead of like pursuing big names, just like organically, gradually growing to a point where instead of 20 interviews, we're now approaching 150. And that's like insane. (laughs) I I still find that like absolutely wild. And it's the best archive, like even looking through the website now, it's an amazing archive of marginalized voices in Australia. And I think you touched upon the point, um, organically growing. So I think that journey has been really interesting to watch as well, because you know, I guess the way that arts funding and everything works in Australia, did you find that was tricky to navigate when you were trying to grow the organisation? I like, I didn't even know arts funding existed. That's how like outside of the arts I was. Like I didn't even conceive of grants. Um, At the very start, I was working with this great arts worker, Lynn Nguyen, to kind of do some of Liminal together and she applied for our first grant and it was, I think it was like $15,000 from Creative Vic and I was like, we're never going to get this. There is no way, like no, not a chance in hell. And we got it and it was insane. Like I was like, whoa. (laughs) And it had been all from my own pocket at that, at that, the first year was just me pouring everything I was making into this this project and doing the majority of the interviews and all of the photographs myself, I think because we had this track record, we could show that we were serious about the project. And that really helps with like applying for grants. Um, If people can see that you have a vision, it usually helps. Though this year (laughs) has been, we've had, we've been knocked back for a few. So I think vision (laughs) and funding doesn't always go hand in hand. Yeah, it's a tough year, obviously, for the arts and tougher than most, even though it's always kind of tough. Um, (laughs) So you're a powerful advocate for Asian Australian creatives amongst other marginalised artists. Is there anything in your life that's motivated you to pursue this work? I have, like, a very strong sense of justice, which has gotten me into a lot of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm very lucky to have very beautiful and loving parents. And my dad has an incredible sense of justice. He is someone who has like a very clear vision of what is right and what is wrong. And he brought myself and my sister up with that, like kind of ingrained into us, you know, which has been tricky because some things aren't black or white. Um, And then my mom, who is Asian American and why I call her mom, (laughs) I think because she's from like California and they were it's like very progressive there. And she was part of an Asian American community kind of when she moved to Melbourne, very much was like well before her time, like found us picture books with Asian representation in them in like the early (laughs) nineties, like never, like 
incredible. Like this woman just was like, okay, my children are never going to feel like they are not enough. And like, I owe it all to, all to both of my parents for just bringing us up right. So I, I feel very lucky to inherit that kind of vision and that kind of sense of justice. It's like two very positive things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's cool that your mum was finding literature and books with representation and now you're sort of doing that work, I guess, for the rest of Australia. So that's great. (laughs) Have there been any surprising things you've learned along the way with your journey creating Liminal? I've been really lucky to have um, found some advocates who aren't people of colour, so white people within the scene who see who, who see what I'm doing and they work really hard to support what we're doing. And, like, I don't expect that. And so when that happens, that's been, like, incredibly nice and it's always unexpected. And, of course, there have been detractors and we've experienced, a, like, when I say we, I suppose I have experienced a severe amount of racism receiving, like, very interesting letters from both people I don't know and people I do know. And yeah, there's been an, it's been interesting. (laughs) So like, it's interesting who will support you and who won't and who decides that you're overstepping so they will try to intimidate or bully you. And I think the most surprising thing I've really learned has been like, you just kind of have to take people as they come. It's not like super wisdom. It's just like you just have to keep <laughs> no. doing keep doing the work and if people want to help, they'll help. And if people want to harm you, they will try to harm you and you just need to find the people who are in your corner. Yeah, and focus on them. So Liminal has a forthcoming anthology at the moment called Collisions, Fictions of the Future, which is so exciting. Congratulations. I'm so excited. Yeah, I was just reading about how this came about and would love to hear from you because it sounds like a really cool journey. Oh, yes. Um, so the year was 2018. <laughs> um, no, sorry. I'm such a nerd. In 2018, I was like, I was looking at for some reason I was trying not to do work so I was deciding I would look at like who had won the Miles Franklin and then I was like kind of going through and I was like hmm this is this is strange (laughs) there's like where are the people of color (laughs) um and like Look, there have been some incredible, incredible winners of the Miles Franklin. So, like, obviously this year, Tara June Winch just won, and I'm so excited that that happened. Um, There was, like, Kim Scott in 2000, Alexis Wright in 2007, Kim Scott again in 2011, and then Michelle DeCretza twice in 2013 and 2018. But that's, like... That's still five people up into 2018. And then the next year, Melissa Lukashenko and then Tarajan Winch. So seven wins. But it's like, this prize has been running since 1957. <laughs> like, it was like enacted before the white Australia policy was abolished. <laughs> so like, 
it's interesting to me to kind of look at literary prizes as like the very end point of literary production because it's like one who is like getting published who is like feeling like they have the authority to write and then at the very end of that like who is winning these prizes so I was like this is interesting so I started looking at other prizes like the Patrick White which in 2018 only three people of color had won and it had run from 1974. The Stella Prize still has only had one person of color win or indigenous person and that's Alexis Wright for Tracker in 2018. And like there was just all these glaring elisions. So I was like, okay, well, what can I do as I think like a 26 year old, <laughs> like with no money, <laughs> um, what can I do to make a change. So I applied for some grant money from the Australia Council to run the inaugural Liminal Fiction Prize, and we won that money. And so in 2019, we ran the prize and had like a hundred, a bit over a hundred entries come in and had the real joy of asking Brian Castro, Julie Coe, and Evelyn Arillon to judge. And yeah, from there, we then took the book to Pantera Press who agreed to publish it and I think the books have just come back from the printer which is huge and I I know (laughs) but like that whole process took two years kind of but it's been worth it every step of the way so that was really exciting. Even having a confidence to be a writer or to see yourself as one comes down to society and the culture that we're brought up in and having that platform so important. So even the writers that you've published in this work will be published writers, which is a huge step forward. Yeah, I I feel like it's it's really hard to like even consider yourself a writer. Like it's, ah, there's this really great quote Samuel R. Delaney writes it to like this aspiring black writer and he says the fact that you're writing submitting and winning awards means you've already crashed through the greatest and most destructive hurdle racism sets in our way the one that gives so many of us a self-image that says who am I to think I could ever write anything worth reading that I have anything worth saying or that anyone else might take joy in hearing it how dare I think I have the right to speak write or read and I was just like, what is one thing I can do as like someone who has very little income <laughs> to like help chip away at this hurdle? Yeah. And that's one thing I can do is like try to figure out um, a way to signal that people are worthy of being read. Yeah, absolutely. How do you feel at the moment the literature community in Melbourne and Australia is going in terms of supporting people of colour as writers and artists? And do you think there's some other ways that we can do more in this space? There have been some really incredible initiatives like pop up in the last few years. There's Jed Press, which is run by um, Hala, who only publish people of colour. There's Folk Magazine, which is run by More Blessing. Of course, there's Peril, Overland's new editor, Evelyn Araluen. You know, there's a a bunch of really incredible people of colour and Indigenous people who are coming to the fore with literary offerings, and that's great. But there's a lot more work we can do. Of course, there's 
the recent controversy where Verity La published a very tone-deaf piece that I don't really want to give airtime to, to be honest. But, like, there were so many steps that they didn't have to take that they took, (laughs) even though people of colour were trying to help them in understanding why it could have been harmful. But they decided not to listen. And I think the one thing that the lit scene can do is start listening and valuing people of colour when they say, this hurts me. (laughs) Like, this hurts me and I'm going to tell you why. And if this hurts me, it's probably going to hurt a lot of other people. So I think just the simple act of listening and also stepping aside to give others space or to give someone a platform is really important but like yeah we have a we have a long way to go Um, yeah yeah absolutely well I think this brings us to the next question nicely um because you've described your practice and um, Liminal's practice before is actively anti-racist. And yes. I've always known the term anti-racist, but it's taken on a new meaning, especially, the, uh, you know, this year and with everything that's been going on politically. Mm. And so I really respect that you've said that that is your practice, obviously. And that's really, you know, appreciated by the arts community, but it can also be really exhausting. And mm. I was just wondering, how do you practice self-care and protect yourself from burnout in your advocacy and activism work? So at the start of this year, I had a little note uh, above my desk that was like, take no prisoners nor freelance work, <laughs> which I, which, you know, I, I did, I did not listen to, but um, I have been saying no more often to stuff that doesn't suit my time frame, which helps. Um, and just like trying, I think self-care is often for me, trying to be organized and trying to know what I can and cannot hold and just being like, honestly, just aware of, of where I am at, at the point when someone is asking me to do something. I mean, it's, it is really, really hard because as a freelance worker, you are kind of forced into this scarcity mindset. So you're like, you know, someone's like, can you do this? And you're like, oh, if I say no, then they'll never ask me again. So I have to say yes. And that's really hard. And I think as a person of color, it's really hard because often we are interchangeable (laughs) to other people. So to have a mindset of abundance is like almost impossible, but it's something I'm really trying to work on if I say no, but tell them that maybe they should work with this person. And in the future, I would love to work with them. That's something I'm trying to do. Good advice because the nature of the work itself, as you mentioned, is difficult and you want to um, be available and do everything. But at the same time, this is a big fight and it's going to take years and it's a huge, it's like, you know, you're going towards something that's not going to be achievable by one person. It needs a whole movement. And, and also I think even for me, culturally, there's like this mentality of like work hard, like have a good work ethic, like keep doing everything. But at, at some point yeah. with this kind of work, it's, it can get too much. And then that effect of the burnout can be quite debilitating as well. Yeah. I mean, my partner is very set on teaching me how to learn to relax. (laughs) 
which is um which is funny for him and also annoying for me but <laughs> yeah. you know it's also uh imagine doing something that has no productive outcome yeah, <laughs> I, totally. um he bought me a Nintendo Switch and downloaded uh, Animal Crossing. So I've been <laughs> spending a strange amount of time watering watering digital flowers and making oh, sure yeah. that they grow. Sounds really good because all my plants die like instantly. So it's- oh, no. At the start of the year, I, I did build a garden and that was like the actual act of physically watering was very soothing. But I'm currently in an apartment, so I'm trying to figure out how to deal with a a real garden but at the moment it is digital but very relaxing you know (laughs) on top of everything else we've spoken about which is heaps um you're also a brilliant photographer and that's maybe where some of your love for the arts started even I'm assuming when did you become interested in photography oh my gosh I really hate to bring up my age, but like MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember MySpace. <laughs> but like, no, I remember really wanting photos of like myself, but also my friends. And like, we would go to parties and take photos, but then also do like photo shoots together. And then um, my mom gave me her like um, film camera in like, from the 70s and I've just like I've used that for the last I don't know 15 years kind of and it's just like an extension to me at at this point (laughs) a lot of photographers feel that way like you just like it's a very physical um arts practice where you you are moving a lot and yeah it's it's so nice in comparison to writing it's a completely different part of the brain yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I feel writing, sitting at a desk or wherever you're sitting, it can get really cerebral. So it's really good having a mix of art forms where you can use different parts of your body as well. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> tell me about it. I need to get out of my brain. <laughs> yeah. um, well, are there any intersections you find between photography and writing or a mix of the art forms? Oh yeah, definitely. It's. I think both of them really are a practice of of looking, of of finding um, finding the thing you want to focus hone in on, um, and like being very very careful about um, what is surrounding it and what it's related to. It's very much like a similar um, a similar gesture for me. I think. Yeah, that's awesome, and I think that the way that you've gone about it with Liminal and having those beautiful portraits as well, like accompanied by the words and the interview, works so well together. Yeah, it's, I I like it. I mean, part of the reason why I did it was because, as a reader, I've always been like reading often very white protagonists. So, like when I read something, I kind of assume that the writer is a white person, and I really wanted to get rid of that so um when liminal kind of came yeah just <laughs> I want to use the word gestate it's a horrible word um when it came <laughs> together I was like we need to make sure that it's clear that the speaker is a person of color and that's why we kind of intersperse those photographs to show that like their thinking is there but also their bodies which yeah. I found, yeah, helps. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Oh my gosh. Um, 
go. <laughs> what are you reading right now that you'd recommend? So for work on my PhD, I'm reading Jenny Zhang's second poetry collection, My Baby First Birthday, and it is so good, and I recommend that wholeheartedly. And then for fun, I've been roped into a book club, <laughs> um, which I love, um, and I'm reading um, Girl, Woman, Other. So, And that just won, that just won the booker. Um, who are your favorite photographers? I've been rereading Teju Cole's Blind Spot. And initially I was like, ugh, these photos are rubbish. And then I, I started reading, like, he has a paragraph opposite each photo and he just, like, directs your eye to the photograph and, like, opens up completely new worlds. And every time I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, how did he get it so right? It's so perfect. Um, so, yeah, I, re- I really love him. What's the most recent movie you watched? Uh, I sound like a real ass, but it was Hiroshima Mon Amour, which is beautiful. But I watched it because I'm reading Kathy Carruth and Kali Tal. I'm thinking through Eurocentric conceptions of trauma at the moment for my PhD. Everything comes back to the PhD. It's terrible. <laughs> my next question is embarrassing TV show you hate love to watch. I just finished The Umbrella Academy. Does that count? It's, like, based on a comic, but it's, like, it's very well shot. They just released season two, (laughs) but it's a bit dorky. It's a bit dorky. (laughs) Um, The thing you can't wait to get back to after this pandemic. Oh, my God, my friends. I just want to hold all of them collectively and together. (laughs) Not for six weeks, but maybe one day. Oh, my God. I just want to, like, sit at a bar and I'm like yeah "Yeah, it's silly it's very silly no even just hugging I was just thinking back to like just hugging someone I don't live with um (laughs) would be amazing I'm a big hugger I just want to yeah it's been it's been a hard year for the huggers what's something that always makes you laugh oh my god um Oh, I know. I know what it is. So it's a meme. (laughs) Are you ready for this? It's like, it's a drawing of like the plant, the bird of paradise. Do you know the bird of paradise? Um, And like on the left side, it's like, it's called a bird of paradise. And it's this really like graceful bird and they've drawn it over the plant. And then on the right side, it's this like really goofy. It's very hard to explain. This (laughs) is, why did you ask me this question? (laughs) It's meant to, like, the bird is supposed to be pointing down into the plant and it's, like, very beautiful. But then if you look at it the other way where it's, like, a head, it just looks like it's this really goofy bird. Anyways. Like, <laughs> yeah, I've seen that one, actually. Yeah, we'll, we'll post it in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can make it the, the podcast tile. We don't need my face. Completely non-sequitur, liminal, and the bird of paradise cartoon. <laughs> And I just wanted to ask if you have a quick plug for any upcoming events or projects you'd like our listeners to know about. We are publishing our third chapbook of literature and art starting August 24th, I think, titled Interiors. It's the second in a series of digital chapbooks we're doing funded by the City of Melbourne. And this one includes poems, comics, music, and it is also publishing 
three collaborations we did last year with NIDA, which is really exciting because we essentially were allowed to pull together poets and musicians and ask them to work together on the theme of silence. So one of these is Darlene Silva Sobrano and Hannah Woos, I think of you while my coffee cools. And yes, that is, there's this line, if we ever broke up, I'd have to leave the country. Don't ask me to chill, (laughs) which is like, it's like every single relationship. I'm like, don't ask me to chill. (laughs) I know. I was just listening. Okay. So special surprise for our listeners is that you're going to hear it. Um, in a second. This is amazing. It's like such a great collaboration. And I think after breakups, especially, you're like, how am I ever going to get over this? Because every single thing in this city slash country and world reminds um, me reminds of you. Me. Yes. Heartbreaking. But also, don't tell me to chill. I'm just going to play that on repeat. <laughs> <for> my <boyfriend. laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so the chapbook's coming out in August? Yes. Yes. Okay. And that's exciting. Yeah, so join us for that. Or don't, you know, your loss. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds really good. I'm looking forward to it. And Collisions will be published in November. Yes, yes. Um, Hopefully we'll have some events for you guys too. So Yeah, buy a copy and I'm sure FCAC will share that on our socials so people can have (laughs) access to it. Thank you. (laughs) And so before we leave and listen to Darlene's work, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all the time you've spent today uh, talking to me. And it's been super fun. Oh, thank you so much, Emmy. This was a joy. Before work, I walked into the 7-Eleven at Federation Square and bought a latte for a dollar. I was not in a rush. What good fortune to have enough time to feel a happiness that settled over everywhere. I sat on some steps, unzipped my jacket, and watched the smoke rise out of my coffee cup. I didn't used to drink coffee. But then, the first thing you ordered, the third time we met, was a cappuccino. And when it arrived, I knew even then that I was changed. my hands warm with a cup. I breathed in the scent. I blew gently to cool it. I was thinking 
I'd do anything for you. Most mornings I woke to the memory of your mouth on my mouth. And once I leaned over to say hello and brushed my lips over the top of your right cheekbone. I have done this many times and still somehow I was surprised. Your face was softer than anyone's. The sleep cleared from my eyes. You were everywhere. We have walked the entire length of this city, and once, while we got lost in the garden, you told me about your whole life, and I told you about mine. Na la la mo? city, sweetheart country. If we ever broke up, I'd have to leave the country. Don't ask me to chill. I never wanted you to see a coldness in me. I wanted to look after you, and in return, I just wanted a hand to lead me through a crowd of dancing people. Later at dinner, we will assess the artwork on the walls of the restaurant. I will look at you from across the dinner table. Eyes clear, eyes clear. I really see you, and I want to see more. I am thinking, oh, this is my whole life. I choose you every day with my entire body. I would never die for love because I live for love. But it was still morning still cold and slow, and you were probably still in bed, dreaming of the sky in Paris. I checked the weather in your suburb. I hoped you were warm.
the street, I saw a cathedral that I walked into once when I was 17. I took the knee pad off the hook and kneeled. I prayed the prayer for a woman's grace. I kept a place for you long before you came into my life. Thanks for listening in to FCAC Radio, produced by Footscray Community Arts Centre and proudly supported by Maribyrnong City Council and City of Melbourne's COVID-19 Arts Grants. FCAC is a not-for-profit, independently run community arts organisation that supports over 550 artists annually. You can support FCAC by donating to the centre, hiring our venue, coming to our events or sharing our content online. Follow at Footscray Arts on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or visit footscrayarts.com to find out more. We appreciate your support and generosity.